a lot of this narrative is stuff we have made up as a culture, but it's just incorrect. It's not enough, especially in 2018, to just have a good idea and a computer and some skills and a Stripe account. Like, that's not enough. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, welcome back to the podcast, Boss Man. Yes. How are you doing over there, man? Good. You kind of getting ramped back up after vacation? Yeah, I was on, I was in the woods for quite some time, man. I contemplated not coming back, so <laughs> here I am, electricity and everything. Today we are going to talk about a conversation we've been having behind the pod, so to speak, and one that ought to happen in public. So let's talk about it. What are the real costs of bootstrapping a business? Ian, it's often more expensive and complicated than writers, entrepreneurial thought leaders, want to express it online. What's the reason for that? All the complicated twists and turns, stuff you got to do to get things off the ground, often don't make for clean theory, Ian, or a good blog post, or a personal narrative of heroism. (laughs) That's the thing. You know, everybody likes to uh, retrospectively speak and write about their entrepreneurial journey. And a lot of times, people, I don't think it's necessarily their fault, but they omit a lot of interesting details about lying, cheating, stealing, begging, borrowing, things like that. Sadness, depression, feelings of hopelessness. You know, there's all different kinds of things that are, and look, we are implicated in this as well. Oh, that's why I I know all those things. The reality is, is that getting a bootstrap startup off the ground is so difficult Often so many of the details get lost in the shuffle, you know, side income streams, rich family members, begging, borrowing, and stealing. It all happens. And today we're going to call some people out. And to help us do it as someone who's written extensively about the topic, Justin Jackson, you can listen to the story of his new bootstrap startup on his podcast, Build Your SaaS, SaaS being software as a service. They're starting a startup, Ian, called Transistor.fm. The reason we invited Justin on the show today is because he's a great writer. You got to check out his newsletter and blog. And his recent piece called The Bootstrapper's Paradox picked up steam across the Twittersphere with many prominent members of the entrepreneurial community weighing in and giving responses. So I wanted to call Justin and ask him about it. And it turns out he's got a fascinating story. So we talked about a broad range of topics in this interview, many of which aren't openly discussed online. So I think you guys are going to dig it. I started off this interview by asking Justin about his entrepreneurial origin story, which has its roots where he's still based in Western Canada. I had little businesses in high school. My friend and I put on Stony Plain, Alberta's first ever all-night rave. And that was in grade 12. And we actually made quite a bit of money off that. Went to college for business 
And when I graduated, started working in the snowboard industry. And then I took a little detour, worked for a nonprofit for a while, and then got back into the snowboard industry, had a couple snowboard shops. And once the retail market kind of fell out, basically, it's really hard to run a Main Street retail business nowadays. Why? Just everything changed. So it used to be that, especially with snowboard and skateboard goods, they were hard to get. But once like Tony Hawk's Pro Skater came out on the PlayStation and skateboarding kind of went crazy, and then the same thing happened for snowboarding. It got really commercial. The manufacturers started opening up their own outlet stores, and so the independent retail stores didn't have an advantage anymore. When that happened, I thought, you know, maybe I'll get back into computer stuff. And in 2008, so I would have been 28 years old by this point. What was your like money situation at that time? Like, For me, it's hard to imagine the moment I would know to get out of a business. So I was working at the time in the nonprofit while these snowboard shops were going. And I'd started it with some friends and my friend was managing it. I didn't really have a good handle of what was going on in the finances. But one day he said, you know, I'm leaving. And I'm like, oh, okay. And he said, and uh, (laughs) the government just put a hold on our bank accounts. I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is not a good situation. I don't actually fault him. He was overwhelmed and was trying his best. And it just got, as things often happen in business, he got over his head. And so once I kind of went in, and that was brutal, I figured we probably owe about 80 grand to suppliers, to our landlord. This would have been about 2005. I'm 25 years old. We had two kids by this point. And what I didn't realize is ideologically, I thought, What you do in a situation like this is when you mess up, you own it, and then you pay it all off. And so we closed the business, and my wife and I have this $80,000 debt that we're paying off. And I've since learned that nobody in the, and especially in the retail business, does that. When you close, you just, the business declares bankruptcy, and then you negotiate with your suppliers, and they get whatever they can get, right? But I just thought, no, I've got to, pay this all off. This is the situation we're in. Do you regret that? Maybe. The only thing I regret in life is that I wasn't more open to mentorship and coaching. You know, I just wanted to do everything myself. And I think if I'd been open to having, you know, older kind of business people in my life that could say, listen, Justin, This is how it works. Like in a situation like this, you protect your ass. (laughs) But I don't actually regret, you know, learning that stuff. It's always hard to say how my life would have been different if I hadn't gone through that. Right. And so after that business failed, my wife and I said, we're not doing this again until all of our kids are in school. And so from 2005 until 2016, I really didn't do any business stuff. I just went and worked a day job. I was working for a software company called Mailout that did email newsletters and started at the bottom doing customer support and answering phone calls and things like that. 
you know, I really wanted to advance. And so within, I mean, even a year, I was starting to do product management for them and then eventually became the product manager for the company. 2014, I started working for a different startup in Portland called Sprintly. That came out of, I started this podcast called Product People and they were one of our advertisers. And so when I wanted to make my next jump, the leverage I had in that situation was I had a job, but I had created a network that was outside of my hometown. I was interviewing all of these product people from all over the world, and I was developing relationships with advertisers and other people. And so some of them started offering me jobs. And I had this ability to go, oh, well, I could take this and you know, kind of make my next move. So yeah, 2014, I started just working remotely for this, for Sprintly. Did that for two years and then things kind of went from there. <laughs> How did you make the decision to go out on your own? Like what was the series of considerations? 2015, I self-published a book and a course called Marketing for Developers. I think in its first year, just on the side, it did like $66,000 or something. And I thought, huh, well, if I'm able to do this just on the side, maybe there's something else here. And I'd also started a, a membership site specifically for product people like me that were building things on the side. It was an initially called JFDI. Just fucking do it. Now it's called Mega Maker Club. And so I had started a few things on the side, and when Sprintly got sold, I was like, okay, what, what's my next move? I could go out and find an, another gig, or maybe now's the time to go independent. And so, yeah, 2016, I decided to focus on my own stuff and run a business again full-time for the first time since we had the snowboard chops. You know, there's this idea that information courses and books are kind of a sexy business model, but a lot of people struggle with them. What is it that you saw that so many don't see? I think in general, what I've seen is when there is a pocket of pent up demand that hasn't been fully explored yet, that's a good opportunity. And so here's an example. So I'm doing this podcast, I'm doing this newsletter, I'm writing blog posts, and I start to get emails, mostly from developers. The emails all had the same trend, which was, I've built something, how do I get customers for it? And so when I saw that over and over and over again, I realized, you know, there's lots of marketing resources, but there's not very many that are written for that audience. You know, 2013, I just put up this simplest landing page, which was, it just said marketing for developers, you know, a book for programmers who are building and launching their own thing. And that was it. Just sign up to get a free chapter. And I'd written just one chapter, which was the sample chapter. And pretty soon, it had a 1000 people on it, and then 1500. And then it just kept growing. And so writing a book is really hard. I don't recommend it to anybody. It's like basically the worst experience ever. <laughs> what kept me 
on the project from 2013 to 2015, when I finally got it done, is the fact that there were so many people that had signed up for this list and, you know, were waiting for something like this. They were looking around for solutions and they hadn't found anything. Why do you write? I feel like on the web, writing is kind of everything. I really like podcasting. I really like video. I love getting in front of audiences and speaking publicly. But there is nothing that clarifies your thinking like writing. And to me, the web is still all about words. When I first saw the web, it was in 93. And I could not believe that a teenager in Stony Plain, Alberta, which is a rural farm town in Canada, could write something, throw that on a server, and then people around the world could read it and engage with it. That's insanity. For me, everything still starts with words on a page, whether I'm going to turn it into a podcast or a video or whatever. To this day, I'm not the best writer. I'm probably a better public speaker than I am a writer. But to this day, the things that resonate most with people are the things I've written. They're not the talks I've given or the podcasts I've done or the videos I've made. It's always writing. I wrote an essay called This is a Web Page, which is by far the most popular thing I've ever written. So here it is. This is a web page. There's not much here, just words, and you are reading them. Coming from a product person, this itself is a strange message. The identities we give ourselves are kind of silly. Like, I don't know. What am I? I'm just a jackass making stuff on the web. I always like to write. And the one place where it intersects with product work is that most good products are also very much about writing. So when I design a product page inside of an application, I start with the words. Who is this for? What are they trying to do? What job are they trying to do in their life that this feature has to fulfill? And when I can articulate those things, then all of the other stuff, buttons and Chrome and all that stuff, that can come later. But I like to think that I could design almost any product feature using just text and basic hyperlinks. Everything else is just kind of cruft on top. On the product side, I think it's a really helpful skill. And just on the other side, being human beings that want to communicate and want to express what's going on in their life or express a feeling, to me, that's like the beauty of being a human being. I'm at my best when I'm writing and I'm writing honestly. I love this piece. And one of the things I found with my team is when we're coming up with a new product offering, no wireframes, no sales page mockups, no photos. It has to be only text. It's just like the truth crucible. It's like, do you know what you're talking about here? It's just so easy to like buttonize everything and put photos and value props and bullet points and stuff. It's like, forget all that. Yeah. Yeah. And what I love about it is that it's accessible now to anybody. If you have Notepad or a text editor installed on your computer or your mobile phone, you can be a UI designer, you can be a product person, you can be a blogger, you can be anything if you start with words. And 
you could be better than most people doing that if you get really good at expressing who this is for and what it's for. You made a decision, I think it was last year, to write about your depression on the web. How did you know you were depressed? Oh, man. <laughs> well, it was pretty clear for me. Like There was just stuff going on in my personal life, and I knew I was miserable. I'm naturally quite bubbly, but there's just a bunch of things that happened that just all kind of culminated at the same point. It was like being punched into the ground by the Incredible Hulk. And it was just so like sudden and strong. And I'm sure everyone experiences depression differently. And there's some people that have experienced depression their whole life. I can't speak to that. I couldn't imagine wrestling with those feelings my entire life because this has been a relatively recent experience for me. But it's just like being overwhelmed by feelings and overwhelmed by reality. And I've never felt like that before. And the thing I did have was I had people around me that were saying, okay, you should definitely go see your doctor. I was like, go see my doctor? I'm not a doctor person. And seeing my doctor and she asked me a few questions actually that were interesting. She said, how much are you drinking? And I said, oh, not that much. I have a couple drinks every night after I put my kids to bed. And she said, okay, well, that's actually quite a bit. And then she said, are you doing any drugs? I'm like, oh, I haven't. I'm like, I'm taking a little bit of THC to sleep every night. She basically gave me two prescriptions. The first prescription was to quit drinking and quit taking THC. And then the second prescription was to double my exercise. And actually, the third thing was to keep going to a therapist. Just, you know, going to a professional, even though I really didn't want to, was a very healthy thing. I wish I'd gone to my regular family doctor more often and just talked about mental health there. I wish I'd also gone to therapy earlier because, you know, in life, shit hits the fan. It's nice to have like someone you can go to right away instead of like thrashing about looking for, you know, you've got no conduits for figuring that stuff out. And I've tried to be pretty vocal now about that whole experience because I think it's a real mistake for people to not kind of be taking care of their mental health even when they feel fine. And also opening themselves up to, like, maybe you are drinking too much. Maybe you are working too much. Having someone who is a professional and isn't your spouse and isn't your friends that you can kind of go, ah, whatever. Having someone as a professional go, listen, this is my prescription. You got to stop drinking and you've got to double your exercise. By the way, neither of those things made like the intensity of the negative stuff I was experiencing. It didn't lessen that, but it just helped me cope with it better. And sometimes you're just waiting out the storm. So yeah, it was a crazy experience. And I don't really want to go through that again, but I'm glad I went through it because I think what I learned about myself and just about human beings and mental health and all those things were so helpful. Today's show is sponsored 
by Empire Flippers. They're the leading specialist in helping entrepreneurs buy, sell, and invest in online businesses. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, Empire Flippers integrated, dedicated teams make sure that you're supported at every stage in the process. And they have a huge audience and great contacts in the industry. So for sellers, you're going to secure a higher price than if you were to sell privately. And if you're a buyer, they're going to save you a ton of time and money by carefully vetting all the businesses on their marketplace. So whether you're looking to buy or sell anything from $20,000 up to seven figures, check out empireflippers.com slash TMBA. And if you go there, you can save yourself 300 bucks. That's because today for TMBA listeners, the Empire Flippers have offered a free business valuation, which normally costs $300. So if you're looking to acquire a business, new offerings are posted every Monday morning. So that's empireflippers.com slash TMBA. And a huge thanks to the team over at Empire Flippers for supporting the TMBA podcast. There's a lot of people that talk about the benefits of being an entrepreneur. What do you struggle with as opposed to having had a gainful career and job and salary and everything? I think for a long time, especially after I stopped working in 2016, but you can see this in my writing and and things even before that, I was a real booster of, I think more people should be entrepreneurs. I think more people should bootstrap. And to a certain degree, I think all of that's still true, but I'm also realizing this is not for everybody, and it is actually really hard. And initially, it felt easier because, you know, I I launched this thing on the side, and I always had a safety net, which was this job, right? So I released marketing for developers. It does great. I you know, launched Mega Maker Club and it was just gravy because it was on top of what I was already doing. But when you're completely independent and you have no safety net, it's a much different game, mostly because of your mind. We do not work very well under anxiety. And a lot of entrepreneurship is that, is being under enormous pressure and enormous stress and having to make decisions. I think that is a piece that I didn't fully consider. And I think the things I said on the other side of the coin are still true as well. I think there aren't very many good bosses in the world. And so working for someone else, there's a lot of negatives to that too. The things that drove me into wanting to be my own boss are still true. And I still enjoy the freedom that I have as a business owner. Like I just didn't like the idea of I had to ask somebody if I could go on vacation. This kind of indentured servitude feeling. There's something about that that always bugged me. There's lots of positives. I get to live in this beautiful town because I'm independent. But when I was depressed and I was doing maybe an hour of work a day, if that, and that lasted for a year, that sucked. You know, if, I, if I'd had a regular job and I could have shown up and just kind of gone through the motions, I would have been a lot better off financially. So there are definitely downsides 
to being an entrepreneur. I think in the United States, even worse, because in Canada, at least we have healthcare. So I pay for my therapy out of pocket, but I don't pay for like going to the doctor. Right. And I've seen a lot of my friends in the US, you know, not having that, which is a form of safety net, that makes it too much. Like, okay, I can't be an entrepreneur because if we lose that, you can take my house, you can take my car, you can take everything. But if I can't go to the doctor without paying, you know, a hundred grand or whatever it might be, I can't take that risk. Just for context, I'll put this on the record. I'm paying my healthcare bill today. I have to promise to my insurer that I won't spend more than six months a year in the US. I am single, never had a health problem. I am under the age of 40. My uh, deductible is thousands of dollars. And my monthly bill is $350. That's crazy. Isn't that incredible? That's a car payment. That's like a really nice car. Yeah. And this is, you know, something I've been writing about lately, which is, I think we've also written a really false narrative about bootstrapping in particular. And the mythology goes like this. The cost of running a, you know, cloud infrastructure has gone down dramatically and anybody with a laptop and some skills can build something and launch it and from customer revenues can build a business. And that narrative <laughs> leaves out a lot. You said we've created some false beliefs. What are those false beliefs? We treat bootstrapping like a meritocracy. It's very much a religion. If you believe these beliefs strongly enough and you follow the, the decrees of the bootstrapping <laughs> gods... You bow down at the DHH and Jason Freed altar. That's right. You bow down there. And, you know, not taking away anything from what they've contributed. A lot of this narrative is stuff we have made up as a culture, but it's just incorrect. It's not enough, especially in 2018, to just have a good idea and a computer and some skills and a Stripe account. Like, that's not enough. There are a lot of other factors that people don't consider. Let's dig in. Like what? Well, one is not everybody comes to the table with the same resources. People's definition of what a bootstrap business is varies quite a bit. But generally, let's say it's not accepting venture capital. And the other kind of trope is that it's self-funding your business from customer revenues. Nobody starts a business without first investing something. If you had a laptop before you started your bootstrap business, then you're investing that resource. If you had 10 hours on a Saturday, you're investing that resource. If your dad gave you a $5,000 loan, that's a resource you had. And we all come to the bootstrapping table with different resources. I think it's disingenuous to tell people that it's just enough to have an idea and a laptop. And this idea that you can just launch something and make enough from customer revenue that it'll work. Now, that does happen. But even there, there's patina that you don't know about. Meaning, like, there's other things going on. There's 
texture to all of this. Yeah. Like I have a piece of texture. For example, I made $45,000 a year doing SEO on the side the first two years I ran my business. That story exists in every bootstrapping story, but it's not part of the book. It doesn't make sense like, oh, I cut a deal with a guy who I knew for a while and he was a good friend of the family. And so he decided to pay me anyway. That's not like a good story. It's not a replicable model. So it doesn't make it out there. Exactly. It's not sexy enough. And even the Basecamp story, I feel like we really need to re-examine it because... So let's take a look at the Basecamp story before we just present it like that. So 37 Signals wrote a book in 2006, I believe, called Getting Real. It sort of became like the Bootstrapper's Bible, I'd say. It's a great book. And so the story of Basecamp itself more or less became the blueprint for how to fight back against this Silicon Valley startup culture. Is that fair? That's right. And even before that, they had a fairly popular blog called Signal versus Noise. They still have it. But that had been going, you know, since the late 90s, I'm guessing. In 2003, Jason Freed wants to build a web application. The web's 10 years old, and PHP and JavaScript have progressed enough that you can build basic, rudimentary web applications. And at the time, most folks are still using desktop applications. So if you were going to do project management, you'd be using Microsoft Project, right? So 2003, Jason wants to build this thing. And Jason, if you're listening, feel free to correct this. But this is from talking to him and David, this is what I understand. He's looking for someone to help him with PHP. He finds this kid in Europe named David Hanemeyer Hansen. And David says, I'll help you with that. And Jason pays him in Apple parts initially. This is how Basecamp started. They keep working on it. 2004, it launches. So by this point, David and Jason have some sort of partnership. David moves to the United States. Basecamp launches. And it launches to an audience. They had Signal versus Noise, a popular blog. And it starts to gain traction. And basically, there's not that much web software at the time. So the challenge that they had is they had to communicate what web software was, which was difficult, but they did have Salesforce had already launched. People are starting to have a place in their minds for what you know a web application is. 2005, a year later, they decide to stop taking new consulting clients. So they're still doing consulting work, but they stopped taking new consulting clients. 2006, it's been two years since they launched this thing. Jeff Bezos had seen Jason speak, and Jeff was impressed. Maybe he'd seen what David was doing with Ruby on Rails. He was impressed, and he just wanted a part of it. He wanted to be a part of this movement that they were creating. And so he offered to buy some of their shares personally, in the same way that you might sell a vacation property. Like Jeff wanted a bedroom in the back. He didn't even want to use it very much. That's right. It must have been incredible. You know, Amazon is, is a huge success. And Jeff reaches out and says, I want to be a part of this. And so he buys their shares privately. Now, we don't know how much that was. But David wrote a piece about the day he became a millionaire, which is the day that Jeff bought shares. So we know David got at least a million. David does not have as a biggest percentage as Jason. So we can prognosticate about how much it was. But 
this thing has been going for two years, and now each of them have at least a million dollars in their personal bank account. And this, to me, already changes the mythology quite a bit. Because what a lot of bootstrappers are killing themselves doing and grinding themselves down doing is building web applications and launching them and trying to make a living from customer revenues. But what kills bootstrap businesses is burning out. You run out of money or you get too stressed out or you don't have enough flexibility in your finances or what have you. And so, I mean, God bless them. That, that is the most incredible story ever. This idea that you launch a business and somebody is so impressed by it that they do that kind of deal with you, which to be honest, I have not heard of anybody else that's had an investor like that. I want to take a minority, a tiny, tiny piece of your company, but I have no voting rights. I have no board seat. I don't even have an expectation on returns. Like a trophy. It's crazy. Yeah. And who knows? Who knows what his motivation was? For Jeff, at the time, I don't know how much he had at the time. I'm guessing multiple billions. A million is not a million or two or three or 10 or whatever. It's just not that much money for him. But for the rest of us, that's a huge amount of money. And that's the difference for a considerable proportion of Americans. $500 is the difference between them making rent and not, or eating food and not. You know, there's probably a lot of bootstrappers listening that are like, that's me. Like, my bank account's down to zero. If I don't get another 500 bucks in the next couple of weeks, I'm done. Imagine what that does to your mental health to have a million dollars in your bank account. And it's great. But if you were following 37 Signals and the Basecamp story, like it's the Bible, it's the bootstrapper's Bible, you might run into some problems because your story is not going to play out the same way. Guess what? All of the stories you've heard are probably not exactly the way you perceive them. What that means is that we're going to have to figure out our own way. We're going to have to be creative about this. We can't just try to follow this path that other people have done before us. First of all, because lots of things have changed. And also, you are just not going to come to the table with the same resources they did. Jason and David, neither of them had kids when they launched Basecamp. I've got four kids. Instantly, I'm in a different camp, right? And again, it's not to say one's better or worse, or I want you to pity me. I mean, I'm the one that had the kids. I, I'm, I understand all that. But we have to understand it's not going to be the same for everybody. I think we can learn from people who have gone the distance. And so when I look at Basecamp, the real story to me is not that they were these incredible bootstrappers, but their skill or luck or a combination of both they were able to buy themselves some insurance along the way. There's other things people don't know. For example, like they were consulting for quite a while while they were building Basecamp. They also did workshops. They sold PDF downloads. You know, there's a lot of things that we've forgotten about their story as well. They still sell workshops. They still sell books. They're good at leveraging the assets they have. And so, 
I think there are lessons we can learn from people who've gone the distance. Not all of those tactics might be applicable to us. Uh, for example, it's very unlikely we're all going to find a Jeff Bezos. But you pointed to this idea of when you laid out this beautiful dichotomy of Jason Calacanis saying that money is bored and you were saying, well, money is stressed, actually, if you're a bootstrapper. Let me jump in here just to give some context. Money is bored comes from an interview that Justin did with Jason Calacanis, who is an entrepreneur, investor, and thoughtful writer in the space. So we'll link up to the, the full post where Justin reflects on that interview. But what Jason said was, and I quote, it turns out there's a lot of money in the world. The money is bored. Money wants to be spent. Money is intended to be gambled. Okay, now back to the interview. One of the things you pointed to was maybe this diversification is sort of at the core of it. Yes. And what would that look like? What, what could it look like for bootstrappers to, to be diversified? I'm at least glad we're having a conversation now, as opposed to saying, you know, the only way to do this is to launch an app and then to start making money off the customers that sign up. We launched Transistor officially in August. So Transistor is a podcast platform. We do hosting and analytics, and we're focused on businesses that want a podcast. So, you know, they have some sort of branded content or they're creating we have Cards Against Humanity as a customer, and they have a show called The Good News Podcast. It's like a brand play for them. Those are our customers. And who knows if that'll work or whatever, but we launched in August. And, you know, John's got a pretty good network in Chicago. He's my business partner. And I've built up this audience of bootstrappers over however many years, 10 years or whatever. And... You know, I'd say uh, probably about 10, 15% of our customers have come from John. Probably the rest have come from me. And we're at just under $2,000 MRR. Monthly recurring revenue. Now, you might be thinking, oh, that's great. Like if you add $1,000 next month, that'll be $3,000 and $1,000 the next month, $4,000. But the truth is, you also have something called churn, which is how many people cancel in a given month. And so there's this tool from my friend Josh Pigford called forecast.bearmetrics.com. And you can type in, you know, so let's say I'm starting at $2,000. And if I'm able to add $2,000 a month, which would be pretty hard, <laughs> but if I'm able to add $2,000 a month and I have 5% churn, it would take 12 months to make $20,000 a month in monthly recurring revenue. That's a long time to be working on something full-time. Two people full-time. Two people full-time, hoping that you can get to $20,000, which in North America, if you have a mortgage, and definitely if you have kids, I'd say you need about $10,000 in revenue per month just to live. For some folks listening, that's going to seem crazy. But if I have a minivan and <laughs> you know a little house... And just to pay for the minivan in the house and feeding four kids, it's 10000 is the minimum. And that's a pretty rosy scenario. Like if I could add $2,000 a month in... It's a lot. That's a lot. That's, you know, our base plan is $19 a month. So let's do the math. That's 105 customers a month. And you're, you're probably going to have to pay to get some of them, right? You're going to have to pay to get some of them, especially now. Again, that's something that people don't talk about is that user acquisition 
used to be a lot easier. And the reason is exactly goes back to this pent-up demand thing I was just talking about. There's this kind of like growing pressure of when is this thing going to launch? We saw this with the iPhone. You know, everyone hates their smartphone. We have the Nokia E37 and, you know, the BlackBerry. And they're kind of these clunky devices. And Steve Jobs notices this pent-up demand And he decides he's going to create a phone that people love. And he launches the iPhone. And it's like he hits a geyser. Like, it's just an explosion of demand. And he didn't have to advertise that much because every newsstand in the country was talking about it. It's the same for the original Basecamp. There's this pent-up demand. And at the time, it was enough for them to publish some blog posts and people would sign up. Can you imagine? (laughs) That's like a joke now. Like, don't just launch and just tweet out that you launched because we know that in today's competitive environment, that's not going to be enough. But back in 2004, you could publish a few blog posts and if there was enough pent-up demand, people would want it and they would talk about it. So at least we're talking about this idea that maybe for some or maybe most bootstrappers, earning an income just from your customers signing up for your app is not going to be enough. At least for five years or three years is what you're... At least for two, three, four, five years. Now, the other interesting thing, by the way, that's come up because of this post is a lot of old timers have kind of jumped in. Yeah, I was curious to know. The internet digerati came out for the post called The Bootstrapper's Paradox. That's right. Which sort of outlines a lot of these ideas we've been discussing. And what did the Greek chorus have to say about this? It's actually really helpful because there was a clear delineation between the new bootstrappers and the old bootstrappers. And so, for example, one thing that quite a few people said Natalie from Wildbit, she's fantastic. She's awesome. She's a great, you know, CEO, founder. But she said, you know, Justin, if this is something that's going to take five years to build, I don't think it's worth it. And then David Hanemeyer Hansen said the same thing in a separate response. So that's just the interesting in of itself. Because a lot of the new bootstrappers were like, what? What do you mean? Like, I was expecting this to take five years. That's kind of the new timeline, you know? I mean, there's definitely a disconnect about what worked for the OGs of bootstrapping and what works now. So what worked for the OGs, the internet was much smaller then. So I just happened to know Jim Kudal, and I just happened to know John Gruber from Daring Fireball. Rob Walling was talking about, on his podcast, Startups for the Rest of Us, we used to go to these blogging conferences, and I met Jeff Atwood from coding horror. It was a different time. And so I think one lesson for sure is what worked back then is not going to work now. And it is going to be really difficult for the OGs to sympathize with what it's like now because they are already in a different context. And the only people that can sympathize are folks like Addie Pinar, even Natalie from Wildbet, where they had to do it again. And all of a sudden, they're like, whoa, wait a second. (laughs) 
this is different. And Addy Pinar had a great blog post on his site where he says, this is a much different landscape now than when I launched Woo Themes. Addy's insights over the past five years have been fascinating to me to follow. He actually wrote me a note about a book that I wrote about exiting businesses. I quote DHH extensively in the book talking about like sort of restarting when you're in your 30s instead of your 20s. And even that, that life circumstance, you, you mentioned how life changes dramatically over 10 years. I think it's worth saying like starting a business in your 30s or 40s is a different thing than starting in your 20s. There's pluses and minuses, you know? Yeah, totally. But we really need to see that texture, right? So Addy says, the software and tech world is massively different today. The space in which we built Woo in 2007, compared to when Conversio launched 2014, imposed different requirements and rules. He said, the tools and knowledge are more accessible, but the competition and expectation for high-fidelity V1s is so much higher. He says when he launched Woo, he didn't have a family, but Conversio, the first launch was within a couple weeks before they welcomed their second child. It changed everything. Well, Jason gestured towards it on the Reddit post you quoted in your piece, basically saying, like, I was a dumb POS when I was in my 20s. I don't, I'm not a good person to ask about this. I quoted this guy named Jason Eckenroth who talked about exiting his business for eight figures. He's like, all of us founders, we look back on those founding days with rose-colored glasses. Like, we totally forget how insane we were, like, all the crazy hustles we did, like, all the weird corners we cut that we would never be willing to do as respectable, middle-aged people with families, you know? You're not going to be that person again. Yes. Yes, totally. Well, you even said it. We are oh so quick to identify with the successes we participated in and then say, oh, that was me. Rather than you sort of walked by at the right time with the right set of BS or whatever happened and it worked out. And now that's you. And you sort of like, you take that into your 30s. That's right. Yes. So that thing you just alluded to, that we only pay attention to the winners and we only pay attention to the winners and we only pay attention when they win. There's a few people we haven't heard from recently or lately, and it's like, oh, yeah, what happened to that person? I think winners do have some characteristics. They're able to try longer and harder than the rest of us or than most people. Not in terms of like keep going on the same idea. I think actually winners are really good at ejecting from bad ideas, but they keep going in this idea that we're all pursuing, which is, I want autonomy in my life. I want to be able to make things. I want to be the boss, all of those things. Well, you mentioned it. Let's talk about the diversification plus the insurance plus the parlay, which is something we're talking about that a lot of successful founders have. It's like this, that led to that and led, that led to that and all sort of rolls up. That's right. Into one soup of success in the end, but it was only one thing that actually hit that made all the difference. So essentially, people are just, you know, they're staying in the game. It's so easy to get ejected from the game if you're not diversified, if you're not parlaying, and if you don't have an insurance policy, whether that's a side hustle or, a, you know, an income stream from a side project or whatever. Totally. And even then, like, so right now, if I can be completely transparent, I do feel like I'm hanging on by a thread in that I've been working on Transistor now since December. We're in the ninth month or something, 10th. So it's been nine, 10 months. 
And I didn't realize how much of my time and energy and focus that was going to take. And then also in the context of my depression and everything, wow, it really took a lot out of me. And so I feel fortunate in that I have, you know, I didn't even realize it at the time, but I've been building up, you know, an audience. I've been building up some assets. Like as an example, I've been opening up more spots inside of Mega Maker Club. It used to be I would open up like every year and just let in a bunch of people and then I'd close the doors. And now I'm doing it much more. I'll let a few people in every week. And that's an asset. I'm even to the point where I'm, I'm realizing I need to bring it up in conversation more. I was just in Portland and I'm at this indie hackers meetup and someone was asking me about it. And in the past, I wouldn't even think about it. But now I'm following up with that person saying, hey, if you want to join, here's the link, you know? Right. <laughs> I'm hustling a little bit. I've been doing the same. If you could hear my story, like my first year about, of being independent, I almost died then. I was going to make 100 things in a year and I launched the Mega Maker podcast and I'm doing all this stuff. And then six months into the year, I'm, I realized I haven't been making enough money. And what saved me is just out of the blue, I got an email from Ullman at AppSumo saying, hey, we want to do a deal on marketing for developers. If that had not come through, I, I never told Ullman this because I don't want him to have too much leverage on me. But if that hadn't come through, I would have been done. But that sale gave me enough that I was able to go the distance to where I'm at now. It's not uncommon to have a story like that. Do you feel sort of caught in the middle? Because it's like your best senses even tells you you're at the very beginning with this transistor investment in terms of your energy and your focus and your money. I've had so many ideas just talking to you this conversation. It would be fascinating to poll bootstrappers who've had a level of success that's worth replicating and say, hey, are you willing to go back and actually account for all the real costs that went into it? I sort of feel like that. I have this job site up called Dynamite Jobs right now. And like I'm over 50 grand into it right now. And I'm not even close to making it a business because I didn't do most of the work. And now I'm spending more of my time on it. And I say, oh, maybe in another year. And like, what's my real metric here? Because revenue is not going to... And I'm thinking to myself, this could easily cost me like $200,000. And like, why would I think it wouldn't? Well, because the last time I started a business, instead of spending $200,000, I like sustained no personal relationships and worked 14 hours a day and was crazy. Yeah. And that's the quote we haven't talked about yet, which is Des Trainer of Intercom. His response was, something a lot of folks don't consider is that five years is 60 months. You're not just giving up whatever you've invested. Like You're not just giving up your 50 grand. You're giving the best years of your life and arguably the best years of your career. And you know, you could be on Wall Street right now hustling just as hard, but making way more money. And it's like a seed round, but instead of money, it's your life. And I think bootstrappers have been far too laissez-faire about, oh, it's just time. It's just my time investment. We need to account for that. It's a huge investment. So I'm 38 right now. By internet standards, I'm already old and washed up. I feel like, I feel like Rocky, you know? <laughs> I feel like 
All right, here he. This is it, Transistor. This is his. This is his last moment. You know. <laughs> I think this is something I can relate to. That you've made enough investment to know how hard the rest of the investment's going to be, and so you know how do you push through, and why do you push through, and how do you make that sort of decision? For myself, I feel like I'm not done yet. I do feel like Rocky. I feel like I've got a couple more fights in me, and I'm not opposed. <laughs> By the way, everyone listening out there, you know, all my friends in the world, I'm not opposed to taking a job at some point in the future. I've had some really awesome companies offer me jobs, you know, right around the time I was going to go independent, and I said no. And I'm not opposed to doing that if someone would have me in the future, but at this moment. I feel like I've still got some fight in me, and there's lots of things motivating me. So one thing is, if I get a job, it's either going to have to be remote, or we're going to have to move, and I don't want to do that to my kids. The other thing, I recently did this exercise where, in a notepad, I wrote down the things I'd accomplished and the things I still want to accomplish in my life, and. When you look at that list, for example, one thing I want is I want to own commercial real estate. I've just always been into real estate, and I want to own a building. I don't know why, but well, I know why. But you know, that's something I want to do. Well, I'm realizing to accomplish that goal, if I want to do that, I can't just like just feeding my kids isn't going to be enough. I'm going to need, you know, some cash to do that. I'm not going to get there. Just working a desk job. Desk jobs are great for security, but are terrible for leverage. No one has ever made a billion dollars working a desk job. I don't even necessarily know if I want a billion. That seems too big to me. But I want to, you know, create things in the world. I want to do this, and I want to get more resources. <laughs> and so, to accomplish that, business is the path to doing that. We're happy you're dusting off those gloves, brother. <laughs> this is going to be a fun one to follow on, on your pods and your writing. Hardest question is last. The audience of this podcast is all bootstrappers. Any like parting shots, any sort of things you want to share with them? I think a lot of people can appreciate the challenges that you've uh, expressed today or articulated today. The biggest thing, I think, is to quit thinking about Bootstrapping like a meritocracy, where we're all starting at the same starting line, that's not true. So any advantage you bring to the table is not cheating. If you have a rich uncle that wants to invest a hundred grand into your business and doesn't want to be paid back in ten years, take the money. If you have you know more connections than anybody else in the world. Get on the phone and use those connections. There's nothing wrong with that. That is actually the only way you are going to survive and succeed is if you're using all of the unnatural advantages you have. And if you don't feel like you have very many unnatural advantages, start building them. Business is not nice; it's survival, and you want to use every single advantage at your disposal. If you're going to go the distance, one of the things I've noticed about a lot of these people who present these mythologies online 
is it's like a business card or a book or it's like this really kind of cool image of them and like what they did and everything. But I notice when I meet these people in person, one of the differences is edge. Oh man, like that dude's a hustler, but he like presents himself online in freaking corduroys and like he's just this thoughtful guy who meditates or whatever. But then you meet him in person, it's like, holy shit, like that dude used to get beat up in high school and he's got an edge, he's got a chip on his shoulder, you know what I mean? Yeah. Even like these kind of like Messiah dudes and like everybody knows who they are, but then you meet them in person, you're like, oh man, that's a bad dude. That's a bad chick, you know? Like, yeah, some of them have that for sure, which is one of the nice things about actually getting out from behind your computer and actually talking to people. I think that's a, I mean, podcasts like this are great too because we've talked quite candidly, but you would get, I mean, if you get me drunk, I'll tell you even more stuff for sure. <laughs> I hope to do that one day. <laughs> If you want the real truth, then that's it. And I've definitely been guilty of pretending I'm someone I'm not, or I'm at a a certain status level that I'm not. And lately, I'm just feeling like, no, I want to clearly communicate what's happening because it would be a real shame for people to get to start bootstrapping thinking, oh, it's just this magical world where you just have a good idea and get customers and then everything works out. It's just not true. It's really, really hard. For some of us, it's worth it. You know, if I die doing this, I'll be happy. If I die in a cubicle, I will be so sad. Justin, thanks for coming on the TMBA podcast. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Boss man, so many things to pick up from this interview. Big thanks to Justin Jackson for his excellent writing. Do check it out. Justin's newsletter is where this material came into my inbox. I'm subscribed. You should be too. Justinjackson.ca slash newsletter. You know, Ian, just insider baseball in this interview. I want to hang out with Justin now. He just seems like he'd be a great hang. Just a thoughtful dude. Super smart. We stayed on the phone for much longer than your average interview. And I was fascinated. I was fascinated by what he thought about things. And it really got my mind cooking about this idea of how many corners we cut. You know, it got me thinking about our narrative. And oh, yeah, like we came on the podcast and it's like, here's how we did product research. And here's how we hired an effective team. But if you look into the details, the begging, the borrowing, the stealing, the cutting of corners, the figuring out ways to sort of get around things that other people are paying for in the industry. It got me thinking, hmm, if we added all those costs up and really priced out our startup, all of a sudden you're right into that level of like VC money, of seed money. It's like, oh my gosh, yeah, like our startup did cost a half a million dollars. It did cost a million bucks, depending on how you price these things. What happens in a lot of these like bootstrap stories is, you know, like Justin said, you do have like a rich uncle or you do like have a relationship with somebody in place and you do work 12 hours a day or whatever your corner that you cut is. That's the way so many of these things happen. And that's the way it always happens. So this idea of like playing things straightforward by the book, by the step-by-step success, you need an edge. You need to find an edge if you want to start a business. That's one takeaway. The second takeaway is just pricing out some of the things that we did. And now as I think starting this new business, Ian, man, am I going to pay retail price for all these things? Or am I going to 
dust off my hustle muscle and start to figure out how to do this stuff a lot cheaper. Do you want to go ahead and reveal some of the begging, borrowing, and stealing that we did in the early days? I want to do a whole episode about that. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking about all the things that we did. It's a laundry list, man. Yeah, we definitely borrowed. I don't remember stealing. We didn't have proper insurance in the beginning, that's for sure. Well, okay, that's a good example. So you did these things for the business that no employee you could ever imagine doing, right? Like you worked a 12-hour day, and then after the 12-hour day, you like drive up the highway an hour to like build and ship an order. Yeah. Can you imagine like not only training someone to do that, but then asking them to do that, but then insuring them to do that? Yeah. You do things that you can't pay for in the beginning. And then once you figure out a process for it, once you have enough sales or you know enough revenue, then eventually you hire somebody to do it. But yeah, you do things that are completely unsustainable in the beginning. Some things that are completely unethical, depending on how you look at it. When we first started our product company, Dan, I had done renderings of our product and we put it for sale online. We didn't actually have a product and then a couple of people bought it. We've told the story before. And then as soon as they bought it, we refunded them and we said, sorry, you know, we don't actually have the product. It's in production. We'll let you know when it comes in. But a lot of people would think that's pretty unethical. Yeah. You know, we return their money right away. But, you know, these are the types of things that you do to figure out if you're going to have a viable business. These are the types of things that you do to save yourself $60,000 in production costs. Well, you know, one of the stories that we've gone into, not into extreme detail, because again, these things are hard to replicate, but we originally had a third business partner who owned 33% of the equity in our company. And the reason that business partner earned that equity, because he opened up his platform and factory relationships for us to build our product business on top. We cut a deal for the platform. Now, how much would that platform cost us in cash if we were going to go build it? And how much better was it for us to have that platform than to start the next, you know, drop shipping business, which, you know, that's not nearly as impressive or as substantial of an asset as actually having a real product business with real factory relationships, et cetera. So that was one of those things you come, you can tell the story, which I'm happy to do in a future episode, but it's one of those things that's hard to replicate. That's your edge. That's a relationship that you have. And in our case, it took years and years to develop it. It's not like we sent out an email. It was an edge. It was the the industry that we were in. We had those relationships in place. And this is a reason why people, including us, like write and talk about history in a different way sometimes than it actually happened. Because we had those relationships in place. They were super valuable. It was a big part of the reason of why that company was successful. That being said, I can see pretty easily after you go through that process, but you have to go through that process, how to build those relationships without having that infrastructure. And that's essentially what people do is they go back and say like, well, yeah, you know, we had this infrastructure, we had these relationships, but it's like really easy to create this, right? Like you go to Alibaba, you just call some suppliers, you have them make some samples for you. And I think all that's true. Like once you go through the process, you can see how it's done and you can communicate to people another way to do it. But it was a huge advantage for us having those relationships in place. Absolutely. Everybody's got to find their advantage, their rich uncle. What is your edge? Maybe that's the takeaway of this because that's where you're going to be able to bypass a lot of the costs that a lot of people think they need to pay or particularly when it comes to second and third time entrepreneurs or those with funding, they actually do pay. And the question is, is do you want to write that check or are you willing to find ways to get around it? That's the question 
for today. We want to hear your thoughts. Check us out over at tropicalmba.com slash the cost of bootstrapping. And also check out our guest, justinjackson.ca slash newsletter, his excellent writing and blog. I'm still an enormous fan of blogs, Ian, and Justin's is one of the best. Thanks for joining us. Let us know your thoughts on this one, and we will be back, as always, next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.